Welcome to Hiraith, a home for the left in Wales. Tonight we are talking the US election. We have three wonderful guests joining us this evening. Firstly, we have Ian Stafford, who is the senior lecturer in politics at Cardiff University, whose research and teaching interests include devolved, comparative and US politics. Hi, Ian. Hello. Uh, we also have got Anna Bounds. Uh, she now lives in Tucson, Arizona, but is originally from Penarth. Anna spent 11 years as a civil servant working for the Welsh Government, uh, including some comments to the Cabinet Office and Scotland Office, and she currently works for the University of Arizona College of Education. Hi, Anna. Hi. Finally, our third guest is Gareth Roberts. He's an assistant professor in linguistics at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. He is originally from Dolgetli, but has been living in the US since February 2011. Hi, Gareth. Hi. It's lovely to have you all here. Um, the first question I wanted to ask is, what do you think are the primary similarities and differences between US and UK politics? Adding another dimension to that, the difference between US and Welsh politics. Well, I guess obviously it's, it's kind of US politics 101, the defining characteristics of US kind of politics being the two-party system. And although obviously in the UK, historically, that's how it's characterised as well. In more recent years, that kind of moved to a multi-party politics, particularly in Wales as well. If we're looking at this election it's quite interesting the the kind of minor third parties the libertarian party the green party have been completely out of the agenda you know this is very much two-party politics in the u.s there are some similarities there are differences but there are similarities you could argue that the uk has become more polarized between the two main parties and and certainly again that's one of the defining characteristics of u.s politics this election uh, cycle the previous probably since the 1990s election cycles so really that kind of really strong two-party identity but also the the fact that it's driven towards an increased polarization in recent years are probably two of the key things there's lots of things we could talk about but there's two that i'll pick out to begin with thanks ian anna what's been your overall impression comparing the two systems mine's more like of a personal talking to like people i mean my my husband my ex-husband was air force military so i was very much immersed when i first got here in a very republican very conservative and it was very jarring for me coming from <laughs> coming from the uk people here are far more um vitriolic i i know it's been six years since i've been in the uk and i know that's probably changed a little bit but there's no people don't want to have the middle ground and one of the things i seem to have noticed is that Things that were traditionally very right-wing about five years ago have now been shifted to be very much more central focus and those individuals who are on the fringes have now been brought much more into sort of like every day. And so that's slightly worrying for me that these kind of, these kind of views are now more mainstream when five years ago people just thought they were crazy. So I suppose one thing to add to what's been said already is the difference in the kind of cultural hot buttons that you get in the US and the UK. So obviously in the UK, you might um, mention things like the NHS and so on. Healthcare is obviously a, t a hot button in the US, but in a somewhat different way. The other thing is abortion. I mean, there's that question about what could Trump possibly do for people to go off him. And there was a classic example of shooting someone on Fifth Avenue, right? That probably that would not even necessarily affect his popularity all that much. I suspect, and I don't think anything similar would happen in the UK, I suspect that coming out strongly in favour of um, abortion would possibly be what could do Trump in with um, some of his uh, primary supporters. So I think things like that, there's a sort of cultural difference. The role that race plays, I mean, race obviously plays a role in the UK politics and possibly should be more some, something UK... Uh, people in the UK think about more, but I think the role of race as well is rather different among uh, many other things. Just the, the cultural um, hot buttons, I think, are one of the things worth adding. The role of religion in the US, I think, is also very key, um, particularly when you look at Trump's base, and that links very much to the abortion um, issue of being another sort of hot topic that I think is very different to the UK. Yeah, just coming in on that again, it, it's, it's quite interesting when you look at the, the commentary on this election, but previous elections as well, in comparison to the UK, you know, we talk about Labour getting out their vote or, or the Conservatives getting out their vote. In a, in a US context, you're talking about demographic groups, you know, so the recent coverage this morning has been about can Biden get Hispanic voters out? What's the effect of Black Lives Matter going to be on getting the, the black vote out for Biden when Hillary Clinton was perceived as not doing as well as that on, on that, in, obviously in comparison to Obama. So it's quite interesting, again, that kind of language that's used around getting the vote out 
is a little bit different from the UK. We don't really talk about that quite so much in the UK, perhaps. Um, so, and again, religion comes in there as well. What's the kind of position in US politics? You've got Republicans and Democrats. But I read something this week, and it was phrasing it more as this year's election is the right, being the Democrats, the, the further right, which is being Trump. Is, is that something that you've picked up on in local coverage? How is it framed over there? Um, I actually, Arizona is a really interesting state. It's a potential swing state. Um, Tucson is actually very blue compared to the rest of the state. So um, I'm like in a, quite an interesting position. We have a Democrat mayor. It's very much more liberal sort of in the way it's leaning. I, I think it's funny because like Biden is very much viewed as quite a central. He's not left. He's kind of quite central and is pretty conservative for for a democrat so i think that he could he's not as progressive as sort of particularly younger democrats would like him to be but he's not as conservative as um, sort of like the swing vote might want him to be it's a really difficult position i think it is something i hear talk about here i mean i should say i don't have a tv i don't tend to watch um the news directly but in the discussion, the discourse people are having online about American politics is definitely something people talk about. It is something that people in the left who might identify themselves as socialists certainly talk about in the US. And the other thing I'd add that I think has been an interesting part of the discourse is that while, as Anna says, Biden is not, is not perceived as being especially left-wing, there is a kind of a hope among many people that the younger Democrats, the progressives, some of whom played quite a big role in, um, in the race to become the nominee, might help push Biden, might help to shape the narrative, and already have um, helped to shape the narrative um, in what um, many people would hope is going to be a Biden presidency, um, well, at least not a Trump presidency. So I think that there's that. It's certainly part of this course here, and I think there is, it's recognized by some people that um, what we call the left here is not really the left. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting dimension um, because if, as, a, as someone living in Britain, uh, watching something like Fox News, and um, you know, I don't think it, it's actually aired in the UK anymore, but you know, the description of Joe Biden by Donald Trump as being a radical left, etc. This is something that it's it doesn't really reconcile with, with what you look at his actual policies are. So it's interesting as to how we as outsiders would view American politics and where the kind of the left-right continuum is. And someone like uh, Kamala Harris is a vice presidential candidate. Again, if you think about it, she's a very moderate candidate. So I have, I have colleagues who have friends in the, in the US who were very disappointed about her selection because they really wanted a more radical figure to, to almost combine with, with Biden. But for all the reasons that Anna and Gareth have mentioned, you can see why he's gone for that because he's trying to claw back some of that moderate vote uh, that, that, that voted for Trump last time. How do you find that the Biden-Trump dichotomy is playing out in those, those states that used to be so hardline one way, but have now started to become more sort of like swing states? Because I think that Biden is polling better than Trump in both Arizona and Pennsylvania at the moment. So Anna, how have you, how have you found that dichotomy playing down on a state level? Like Gareth, I, I don't have a TV. For me, I look at my, this is really sad and shows how old I am, my Facebook friends, <laughs> because I have, I work for a very liberal organisation. I work for a university that is very liberal, is very much about equality, diversity is very sort of, that's one chunk of my friends. I also have a lot of friends from the military, because there's a really big um, Air Force base here in Tucson, who are the complete opposite. And so on my daily news feed, I have a complete polar sort of, depending on who's posting. And I think that's kind of the way big chunks of America are. I haven't seen as much on the policy side from Trump supporters as I have from Biden supporters. It tends to be more personal attacks or smaller issues from the, the Trump side, more on policy attacks from um, the Biden supporter side. Gareth, so much was made of the Rust Belt states in uh, the last election how do you see the battle going there do you think that biden's going to be able to take back seats that clinton lost and i say seats i think in such british terms in states like clinton lost that trump won last time in the rest belt it's interesting i think something worth bringing up here is the 
that in many ways the division in the US is partly state by state, but it's also there's this huge um, urban rural divide. So one of the things my family's been doing doing during the pandemic is going off campaigning in rural Pennsylvania and um, other nearby states has been a you know, nice thing to do during the pandemic. But that brings us out of Philadelphia, which is a pretty um, blue Democrat vote. I think something like 20% of people in Philadelphia vote, um, vote Republican or voted Republican, it seems at least. But you really don't have to go far outside the city to start seeing Trump lawn signs, and quite a lot of them. And you, what, the further you get into um, rural Pennsylvania, you get into what gets derisively called Pennsylvania. Um, and it turns out someone trying to tell me that actually sort of, it's not simply a comparison with, with Kentucky. Perhaps someone, at least, I don't know if this is true, was trying to tell me that um, you actually had quite a uh, population movement from um, certain states like Kentucky to rural Pennsylvania. So I think that's a big part of the story, that there's this rural-urban divide where the cities in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, are very much Democrat voting, and then you have the rural areas are much more Republican voting, and there's only so much of a swing that you can really get in those places. Biden may benefit somewhat from being from um, Pennsylvania. In fact, I'm not sure quite how much he's likely to benefit. There doesn't seem to be a big factor. Um, Trump, of course, is from New York, and New York is not going to vote for him this next election. Um, so my feeling is there's a little bit of ground that we can get from rural Pennsylvania, but really the biggest story is not so much, I think, the swing voters. It's perhaps getting people out to vote, making sure that we get the people who would vote Biden out. I mean, there's a little bit, I mean, people have been talking a little bit about Biden gaining ground with older white people, and that may play a part, and I think that's, but that's maybe, that's quite a big story perhaps in Florida. Whether or not that's a big story in Pennsylvania, I'm not so sure. It's worth adding that while I say there's this urban-rural divide of 20-80% in Philadelphia, let's say, um, I have also seen in South Philadelphia, traditionally quite an Italian-American community, also quite a few Trump supporters here. So, And I don't think our Italian-American next-door neighbor, for instance, is going to change her mind and vote Biden this time. But I think she'd be more likely to vote Biden than she would have been to have voted um, Hillary um, last time. Well, it is fascinating, and we're very lucky because Anna, both Anna and Gareth live in two of the more fascinating states at the moment. But really, the, the story of the 2016 election was Clinton's failure to secure those blue wall states, you know, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. And, and it's exactly, you know, some of the academic explanations for this of uh, exactly touching on what Gareth was talking about there. So there's an American academic, Katherine Kramer, who who wrote a book about Wisconsin talking about rural resentment and this idea that in some of the more kind of populated cities in Wisconsin there was much more support for Democrats and then in, in the northern kind of uh, more, more rural areas it was real kind of resentment around Washington around the political establishment and Trump tapped into that and you can see that across those blue wall states but what's quite interesting is his majority in those states in 2016 was really small so to give you an example the majority in Michigan was 10,700, which is smaller than Joe Stevens in central Cardiff, right? So for it to flip the other way is, doesn't gonna, isn't going to take much. But interestingly, Pennsylvania, there was a little bit of a narrative in the media in the last week or two that actually the polls in Pennsylvania were narrowing slightly. And perhaps Wisconsin and Michigan, Biden looks like he has those, I won't say under his belt because everyone was saying that about Clinton in 2016, but he looks like he's maintaining his lead, whereas in Pennsylvania, there's at least been some argument that, that the polls are beginning to narrow, but you know the polls are very varied. Um, so if you look at something like Nate Silver's website, um, um, 538, you know there are some outliers in terms of polls that make it look like Trump's kind of evens, and there are other polls which put Biden a long way ahead. So it's gonna be one of those things of, you can't take anything for granted in these states, I don't think, until election day. And what's really interesting about Arizona and a state like Texas, it's just really the impact of demographic change on those states. As Anna was talking about, those cities changing their character, character means you've got a lot more Democrat voters. And so maybe not at this election, maybe the next election, Arizona might, might turn blue, Texas might turn blue. And that would be a kind of a change to the kind of political geography, as it were, of, of, of the Electoral College. One of, the, one of the things I'm interested in, it's about the reality of politics in uh, in the US, the three of us who were 
producing this pod we're we're interested in politics so we think everyone is but i don't think the reality here is that at all and you know you only have to look at turnout rates in welsh elections to show we are um representative in wales as it were but what what is engagement like in america i think um one of the things i really have noticed here it is politics is more about a cult of personality so it's engaging and they might not be voting for policy specifically they're voting for a personality of somebody who connects with them and i think that that is something that trump did really successfully at the last election he he had that kind of personality and he came from outside of politics he came out from outside of the establishment and people are incredibly jaded about the establishment politics in the us and they feel that their vote doesn't matter in the whole electoral college so they feel like they don't have a say and this was somebody coming through who had was not associated with the establishment was brash was loud was engaging and got their attention in a way that previous politicians haven't done so i think that that got people talking the other thing that i have really noticed is there's a very different attitude in the us compared to the uk in terms of altruism the us seems very much more it's about me and my family and what it means for me not about the wider community not about so you'll see a ton of arguments of like particularly around healthcare why should i pay my money into a system when i'm not going to benefit from it and that's a fundamental cultural difference which i struggled when i came and i still struggle with americans will pay attention to policies that they think will affect them directly so you can see the hot button issues gun rights you're taking my gun away it becomes about them so it becomes a hot button issue anything like the abortion issue that impacts on people's religious freedom and their religious beliefs so it becomes about them so it becomes a hot button issue so i think that's where us people become engaged in those issues because it directly affects them maybe they don't know as much or care so much about the more wider um economic strategies and all of those policies because they can't direct that to how it affects them so i think yeah i have very little to add to what anna just said i think one thing to add to the point about individualism in the us is perhaps to do with grassroots movements and things like that so one thing which is in some ways sounds of a certain sense as if it in a certain sense as if it's uh, runs contrary to that but in a certain sense it's part of the same story is that there's less of an expectation that the state should do stuff for us so for instance when it snows you are responsible for shoveling the sidewalk outside your house that's your job and there's more of an expectation from that that local communities it's kind of david cameron big society idea in a way it's um which i think in many ways is influenced by the american um situation there's this expectation that you're responsible for your local community and therefore the there's more of a sense that community comes together on a local smaller grassroots level to sort out problems and things like that which i think is interesting i think that just feeds into politics in the sense that you are perhaps more likely to get more grassroots movements i mean the tea party was a famous whether or not it was really grassroots or astro turf one i mean that's a but with a with a famous example of that um but i think yeah but i agree broadly with um pretty much all of um anna's points i think this this is um this is key i i guess if we look at at the the, uh, the, the highest level i guess if you're looking at the classic use looking at voter turnout or something like that well if you look at the kind of league table of of turnout you know america in in presidential elections is is generally below kind of turnout at a general election in the uk it doesn't do that it's not that well so it's you know hovering in the kind of mid 50 percenters but even the characteristics of those of that electorate who is voting it's very similar patterns to the uk so the old, older people are more likely to vote young people less likely um different uh, ethnicities they're higher higher in likelihood and obviously things have flipped and changed a little bit so historically it was always that you know older white voters would be the most likely to vote but then obviously in particular i guess with Barack Obama's presidential campaigns that energized parts of society particularly black voters who perhaps voted for the first time and although you know not all of those came out and voted for Hillary Clinton actually those levels are have increased hispanic voters are interesting you know they don't you know they don't turn out as much and these are key questions for the democrats about can they get these young people out these young people who are energized who are seen as 
really driving through the 2018 midterms, you know, and electing this new cohort of young and democratic uh, Congress, uh, congressmen and women, uh, will they be, will they come out and vote in this election? And, and this is the kind of fascinating thing. And, and so in some senses, it's, it's, it's quite different and distinct, but it's also very similar because you could argue there's probably similar challenges for progressive and left in the UK. Can you tap into certain groups in society who aren't engaging as much as perhaps they, you know, other groups historically? Um, so there are similarities and, and differences. That's a very academic answer. That is, you know, it's a bit of this and it's a bit of that. I'll sit on the fence kind of thing. Ian, can I ask a, a quick question? Do you think... Um, this is because I was helping my third grader with his civics homework. The number of seats in both the sort of like both the houses here is actually less than the combined number of seats in the UK. Given the fact that we're like 330 odd million here, do you think that that plays into a little bit of the disengagement of the US sort of voter in terms of the representation that they actually get? which is why they can then kind of get caught up in the cult of personality because they actually vote for the president. I think it's a difficult question. I think it's an interesting one because in comparison to the UK and the US, there are just a lot more elections, you know, um, so at the state level, you know, remembering that, you know, the US is a federal country, you know, perhaps there's a greater focus on, on the state level legislatures and, and so on. But in particular, I think the thing that would grab me most there is is the way in which, particularly in the House of Representatives, you know, the gerrymandering that takes place in terms of, you know, drawing the boundaries. This is a I know there's discussions of gerrymandering in the UK, but it's on a whole different level in the, in the US. Right. Um, but I think there are genuine questions. Uh, and it, a lot of this goes all the way back to kind of the initial lectures I do in my course around the Constitution, around the Senate. The idea that Californians are represented by two people in the Senate and it's uh, and it's huge. Uh, perhaps these are issues. Um, but as I say, I think there are some deeper issues that, you know, that are pr perhaps uh, need to be considered first before that design uh, of, you know, the total number of people, I think. So not so much on the on the topic of the number of, um, of seats in Congress. So, and I guess we'll talk about Biden's hopes and strategies and so on. But I think one of the interesting points about this election now is that I don't think, on the whole, anyone is all that excited about Biden, perhaps. Maybe some people are excited, they don't like him very much, maybe some people love him, but I don't think that's the story. I think what, what's interesting here is that what we're hoping for, assuming we all don't uh, want Trump to win, what we, we're hoping for is for the people who really don't like Trump to come out and vote for Biden. That's where I think the motivation here is going to come from. There's also, of course, a story about suppressing um, votes through the, the mayor, the problem with mail-in voting, et cetera, et cetera, gerrymandering and so on. But I think that's part of the interesting part of the story is that this is not an election where you have two candidates who, have, who um, have vote the same kinds of emotions in a polarized way. This is an election where you have one candidate who votes polarized emotions and another candidate who is much more, votes much more muted, middle of the road kind of um, emotions. I think, and I, think, and I think that may well be playing into um, Biden's strategies in, in certain ways but I guess we may come to that. Yeah well just on that point it's actually quite interesting. Um, Anna I don't know if you want to cover this but certainly one of the things we've been told in the US those who follow uh, sorry, us in Wales who follow uh, US politics have been told is that part of the appeal of Biden is he's actually quite boring and that he's less likely to cause huge uh, international diplomatic errors etc or offend too many people and part of his appeal is that he's very middle of the road. Do you think that's something you've picked up from people? A little bit, yeah. I know um, some people were um, disappointed that in sort of his nomination, but yeah, he's less likely to tweet something. <laughs> yeah, I think after like four years of constant waking up, what's happened today? What has he said? Like that constant level of no, really, this can't be happening. Oh, it is. Having somebody who is not going to, you know, fill up every single TV show with randomness would actually be quite nice for stress levels for the whole country. Relevant to this is the point about electing, um, electing choosing um, Kamala Harris as his VP, um, and also the point 
recently where he came out in favor of law and order, spoke out against looting. I think this plays into this story to some extent that a lot of people on the left, a lot of the progressive people are not very happy with this. They're disappointed in this, disappointed that they have Biden, disappointed he chose Kamala Harris, disappointed that he's taken that stance on the, on the riots recently. But I think the point here is people who care about Black Lives Matter, people who progressives are not going to vote for Trump because of this. But people who perhaps care about law and order, perhaps some of the older white voters might be shifting. So I think there's this part of the strategy here that he, it gives him a space where he's actually able to, um, to annoy progressives in a way that some other um, Hillary perhaps was less able to do. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Biden does drop the odd clangor every now and again. He's not, he's, he's not completely boring. But, but he's, he's much less, he's nowhere near, I don't think any politician's anywhere near uh, uh, what Trump does. But I think there, there is this point regarding, uh, and we're starting to get into it now, the strategic approach that the Democrats are kind of adopting here. And effectively, you're looking at, again, who are the core groups that, core groups rather that they're trying to get to kind of perhaps not vote for Trump again and to vote for them. And you're looking about you know, the, the suburban, the white suburban population that's become this fixation of Donald Trump uh, in, in over the last uh, four or five weeks or so. And really, they, the Democrats wanted the candidate who didn't scare off those types of voters. And they're almost taken for granted that perhaps more progressive people are a little bit disappointed. As, as Gareth says, they're not going to vote for Donald Trump. It's, and this is the thing, who else are you going to vote for? You're going to vote for the Green Party and potentially let Trump back in? Or are you going to gonna vote for Joe Biden? You might have to hold your nose, but you know, he's not as bad as Hillary Clinton. He was, he was vice president to Barack Obama. Come on, you know, we need to get rid of Trump. This, is, this has got to be the number one priority. You know, let's get rid of Trump and then we can sort other stuff out later on kind of thing. And, and we should remember that Joe Biden is from Scranton. So for the Welsh historians amongst us, we'll know that he's going he's gonna to be really going for the Welsh-American vote. So, you know, we've got to back him for that. But in terms of, you know, what you've all just spoken about and how people engage, I think one of the things we haven't touched on and just fascinates me a little bit is how American politics is funded. You know, Ian, I don't know if you want to start us off and just explore that side of it. it yeah, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating aspect of American politics. And obviously over the past 10, 20 years, things have changed quite radically. Um, again, if you know anything about this, the Citizens United judgment by the, by the Supreme Court effectively allowed um, corporations to you know, almost pump as much money as they really wanted to into the system. Uh, but the fact that we have things like political action committees, again, remember in the UK, any kind of media uh, or television coverage for political parties is distributed evenly or proportionately to the success of a party, and it's funded. Whereas in the US, you can literally buy as many hours on television as you want, uh, which is the latest big story is that Donald Trump is withdrawing his TV airtime because he hasn't got any money left potentially and Biden's saturating Florida. But it's, it's I, I guess, one of the, the most problematic features of US politics, the idea that wealthy interests like the Koch brothers can effectively subsidize and bankroll candidates. And that's what they did. They bankrolled Tea Party candidates and that pushed the Republican Party to the right. Even, uh, and, and it was one of the big criticisms of Hillary Clinton that she was kind of in bed with, with Wall Street as well. Um, and there are critics on both sides. It's, it's not a left-wing kind of critique. There are critics, critics on the right, libertarians, who actually see that, you know, there's, there's too much money here. But will anything ever change? Well, you know, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. And if you're a, a politician, why would you change this when these people are giving you, you know, millions and millions? Um, almost limitless in some cases. I mean, day to day, you, you certainly get more, you see and get more requests for funding from um, for political movements. Absolutely. I mean, it's something you see day to day. I mean, the other thing I think is worth saying is it's a kind of irony in a way of the 2016 election. That, so people are aware of corruption in American politics. People are aware of this problem we've been talking about, the amount of money, that Ian, um, very clearly the amount of money going to American politics. And this allowed Trump, a millionaire's son from New York, to sell himself as the person who will drain the swamp, who will be the answer to this big problem of too much money in American politics. I, there's an enormous irony there. I mean, this is not to say that Hillary Clinton did not, of course, have her own... Um, there were not reasonable concerns about Hillary Clinton, her involvement in um, a number of different um, figures, organisations, etc., etc., etc. 
so it is genuinely a huge problem, but I think it's, a, it's a incredible irony that Trump has somehow managed to convince um, a large number of people in America that he is much more like them than Hillary Clinton, this New York millionaire's son. Um, part of that, of course, is, is how he talks to them. Um, I think that plays a part. There are little things like that which are perhaps worth um, commenting, but, it's, um, but I think that's a very interesting irony here. Strange. It's almost a bit like the Boris thing that's happened in Britain. He's a, you know, eaten, educated Alexander de Fiefel Johnson who's somehow managed to convince himself he's the, the man of the people. It's very strange, isn't it? Anna, what do you find? I can't actually vote, even though I'm a green card holder in Arizona. Um, that doesn't give me the, the right to vote. Um, I have noticed, and it's a big thing, the difference in the information that can be put in political adverts here compared to the UK. So from my distant memory, the UK had specific um, rules about it had to be you are stating your policy, you can contrast it with existing policies, but it's very much policy based about what you would do. Here, it's like it appears to be open season, say whatever you want, frame, you know, misquote, take segments of speech and put it out of context. And I have to like, they put it everywhere. Like if my kids are watching um, some YouTube videos, there'll be political campaigns coming in as their adverts. And then I have to sit down and explain to them. That's the thing that I found really difficult was that it doesn't seem to be about policy anymore. It's very much, again, going back to the personal, going back to the vitriol, going back to trying to frame your opposition more of a smear campaign than it is about the policies and what positive. It just feels much more negative. Just just to, to add something here as well, it is worth noting it, it, it isn't entirely dominated by billionaires. There have been politicians who have managed to raise a huge amount of money by small donations. So, Kerry, you're asking about, you know, overall engagement and, and certainly, you know, if you look at any of the academic analysis of Obama's campaigns, but actually also Trump raised quite a lot of money through small donations. You know, I wouldn't want to contract, you know, I wouldn't portray this image that all politicians only get their money from kind of vested interests. That's where they get an awful lot of their money. But there is also money raised through relatively small donations and an awful lot of them. But clearly, where are you going to really spend your time raising money? Is it going to be tapping up these very wealthy individuals? And there's been, been some great documentaries on this, um, one of them was released quite recently on on Netflix called The Swamp, and it basically followed three Republican congressmen round who were trying to raise money in, in, in various different ways. It's it's an interesting phenomena, I, I guess that I don't think we're ever going to have in the UK because of all the reasons that Anna said. You know, things are so tightly structured that I'm not sure what you would spend that much money on in a UK setting. Buying more time on Facebook, perhaps. I'm I'm not sure. Who knows. I do sometimes wonder, though, if I'm being naive about how things are in the UK, about to the extent to the which the problems I see very openly, as you talked about, Anna, but some very big, open, clear things that gerrymandering you talked about, the extent to and voter suppression, of course, the extent to which different or similar things actually do happen in the UK, but kind of behind the, the scenes, right? So obviously the amount of money is different, but to what extent does the difference between the amounts of money even though it's the absolute amount is different, the, the, relevant, the relative amounts of money um, might make a difference. And the different kind of things we just might not be quite so aware of in the UK because perhaps a little bit subtler. I don't know the answer to that question. I guess this is perhaps a question for you, Ian. But yeah, I, I wonder about this, the extent to which I'm just being a bit naive about um, how things are back home. Well, certainly, I guess if you look at the, the funding behind political parties in the UK, now, clearly, there's a, there's a whole debate there around the critique from the right is that, well, the Labour Party are kind of in, you know, funded by the trade unions and the critique from the left of the Conservative Party that they're funded by business. And as you say, the, the amounts being donated are much smaller, but you still get the media coverage of, you know, someone paying £10,000 to go to a, you know, a Chancellor's dinner with, you know, George Osborne back in the day and that kind of thing. Perhaps there are parallels, there are similarities. But I think it's just the fact that it's it's part of the business of American politics. And you think about the House of Representatives has an election every two years. These politicians, they get elected. And then in a very short period of time, they're on the phone trying to raise money for the next re-election campaign. So I, I think it might just be a, an order of magnitude rather than a fundamental difference, which is probably what you're suggesting. I think that's probably right. On that point, I think that's what struck me about gerrymandering and voter suppression here, is it's not that this doesn't happen to some extent in the UK, as you said earlier, but that it's business as usual, at least for certain um, sectors of the political um, class, let's say. It's, it's normal to try and suppress voters by whatever means you have available. 
I suppose it's quite hard in the UK to spend big money because you just can't spend it on TV year time. You've got national, you've got constituency spending limits and stuff as well, haven't you? In British elections, each constituency, you're only allowed to spend so much. The national spends are bigger, which is where a lot of political parties spend now because they spend so heavily on social media and you know less on TV. But social media, definitely, that's how we really push uh, voter engagement in the UK now. Anna and Gareth, are your Facebook and Twitter feeds full of sponsored posts? And you're, you said you're, you've got YouTube ads, but is it absolutely everywhere on your socials? I get these little bursts of advertising on Facebook. So for a little while, I was getting a lot from the NRA. And I am um, not a supporter of the NRA, I should say at this point. It's not something I've ever liked their page or anything like that. And then more recently, I've had more from Trump's campaign. I tend not to mute much, partly because I'm kind of interested to see what, I get, what gets advertised to me. Um, unless I just get bored of an ordinary ad for some sort of product or something. Um, but so I've, I've had quite a few ads like that. I mean, I think the other thing to say is, so while obviously social media is extremely important now, I think Fox News is still important. TV news is still important for a large sector of um, voters. So a lot of people um, who I expect to vote, for, plan to vote for Trump this time, I think a lot of them are getting their talking points mainly from Fox News, possibly via social media as well. But at least the older part of the electorate, that seems to still play a huge part. I have to say, I actively, whenever anything is announced, the first place that I go to look for coverage is Fox News first. And then I'll go and check around other places so I get the full sort of how it's reported everywhere. But yeah, I usually go to Fox News first. Do you mind if I ask, Anna, is that because you, you're interested in their take or because you think it's likely to have to, the amount of it, the information they're likely to have? It's a combination of the two um, because I, I don't want to take just one news source like because everyone has their own, their own bias. So I usually look at Fox News, I'll look at the Washington Post, I'll look at New York Times, um, I'll look at some articles from the New Yorker. With everything, the actual truth is somewhere in the middle, not sort of either side. So that's how I kind of form my opinions, um, because people will only report the bits that really support what they want to say. So if you go across a trawl, you'll end up getting a much better rounded version. So look, obviously we're looking at this election, but it's important to look a little bit at the, the last one too. What do you think that Clinton did and Trump did that took the very sort of strong position that Clinton was in and let it slip through her hands? There, there are lots of things we could talk about. You could talk about the, you know, the publication of the James Comey letter in October, just before the election. And this is what I'm on tenderhooks for, for this election. What's the October surprise going to be this time around? But I think overall, it, for me, it's the, it, it, is, it does come back to what we were talking about earlier on about those blue wall states that were kind of taken for granted by the Democrats. And if you look at how many times Trump visited those states, you know, his campaign knew that they were in play. It doesn't really appear to see that Hillary Clinton did. She didn't really visit them very frequently. And therefore, there was a, a slight amount of I don't want to say arrogance because that sounds really harsh, but um, overconfidence, perhaps, um, you could you could argue it in Hillary Clinton. And you know the the baskets the basket of deplorables comment, you know that's got to go down in history as one of the biggest own goals that any politician has ever made in, in an election campaign. So for me, you know, is, is it a question? You know, she had an open goal and she missed, or it slipped through her hands? Yes and no. I think there were things that. Um, Hillary Clinton did, which which really impacted her campaign. But obviously, on there's always two sides to it. So you know, the fact as as I think as Gareth and, and Anna have been talking about that Trump appealed to a demographic, a set of voters who felt that he was speaking for them, even though he was a a billionaire, etc. And, and it's and that's really the story. It's kind of Trump seemingly being able to get away with all kinds of things. You know, the the scandals in that election, he managed to survive. And most candidates in the past would have been long run long past run out of town but for me it really comes back down to what clinton uh, i guess didn't do or the problems with her campaign really and she's written a book about it uh, <laughs> why i lost kind of thing and why it wasn't my fault but you know there we go i mean i'm not yeah i'm not certain how strong a position she really was to start at the start either i think that's something she kind of looked as if she was on a number of polls but I mean, if you look at the 538 polls they like they keep they go up and down all, all throughout the whole campaign and I think, you know, I think there are lots of 
Ian mentioned lots of um, good points. I think that there was the email thing, which I think was really just a hook to hang a lot of other things on. I, mean, I don't think the emails made that much difference in a sense. I think it was, a, it was something that was available to throw a whole bunch of other stuff on. And it is worth mentioning as well, I think there were problems with misogyny. I think part of it, unfortunately, was the attitude of many voters towards women. And the way that Trump managed to play on this, the way that um, a number of other people managed to play on this fact, along with the fact, of course, that there was a history with Bill Clinton, there was the history of her in politics in the US, which were you know, a lot of easy targets in some ways. So I think in many ways, she did not start out from the kind of strong position, unfortunately, that we, we, we might think she did. Whereas Trump had actually had more of an, advant of an advantage than I think people realized at the start. He had that base he built up through reality TV. He had the fact that partly because of that, partly for other reasons, people didn't take him quite so seriously to start off with. So he, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I'm not so sure her, her position to start off with. Clinton's, I mean, was actually as strong as it looked. I agree with Gareth. I did at the time question why she was being pushed as the Democratic candidate, given all of those issues and her history and the way that I didn't realize until I moved here how like the Clinton family has actually got huge conspiracy theories, is <laughs> all of those things. Um, the other thing that I think um, really helped Trump was the amount of airtime that he was given. Because without feeding that and without putting him in front of people and without that airtime, I don't think that he would have connected um, with his base as well as he did. So I actually think that was probably a really big factor for just getting him out there. And when you start showing somebody with these huge rallies and all of this support, people kind of get caught up in it. So I think that's also a big factor as to why he was able to get where he did. What's it been like living in Trump's America for the last four years? Everything we see is like what Anna said. It just seems like daily crazy. Honestly, exhausting. Um, I don't know if it's the same for Gareth, but obviously being here as um, a permanent resident on a green card, um, I do pay quite close attention to the immigration because that seems to be changing daily. And obviously that will have an impact on me. For example, they keep upping the price of applying for citizenship if I wanted to go down that route when my green card expires. So I keep a close eye on the things that sort of like impact on me. But a lot of the time I have to take a break because you're at this constant level of, he did what? I mean, just like in the last, last week, the whole payroll tax issue. Hey, I'm gonna suspend it. I, you, um, IRS are gonna make you pay it back in your sort of like next year. But if I'm president, I'm going to make sure that you don't need to pay it back. Um, the issue about issuing his list of, here's who I'm going to nominate for the Supreme Court if I'm elected. Um, oh, and look, they're all really great, the people who you want to, very Republican and conservative. So there's that constant thing. And I have to turn it off every so often because I'm just like, I just need to just concentrate on surviving homeschooling my two children <laughs> right now. And then I'll dip in and see the things that come up in my newsfeed if I have the energy or the desire to make myself angry and vent at my, my computer for a bit. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a great deal to add to that. It's similar. I mean, I think it's worth mentioning that in many ways, I'm luckier than many people. Right. So I'm, you know, I'm a white man from Wales, from the have a UK passport. Um, I live in Philadelphia, which is you know, mostly I don't have to put up very often with um, with Trumpkins, let's say, Trump voter, with uh, vociferous uh, Trump voters. It's, you know, my day to day life on the whole, I'm extremely lucky, happy to say is you know, it's not that different. This does not mean that I'm not concerned. This does not mean I don't have this exhaust, as you mentioned, it's exhausting, Anna. There's this awful concern about the future here, awful concern about yet yeah, becoming a citizen, which I, you know, I, I plan to because I want to be able to vote. You know, at the moment I can donate to political companies, I can't vote, and I would like to be able to vote in future elections, assuming I continue to live here. So that's the concern. There's a concern about parallel tests, a concern about immigration in general. And then there are the concerns about things I, which might not affect me exactly personally, but things I really care about. I, I mean, the, the I mean, this is something we haven't touched on at all, but the separating the children from their parents and the immigration camps, I mean, that's just, I, I, every time I, th that's one of the things that keeps me up at night, it's this horrifying thing, which, especially if you have kids, I'm sure you feel the same, and you, you feel that in a, kind of, in a way I don't think you, 
felt I, I felt before I had kids, just this, this imagining what that would be like. So these things that are happening, which are horrifying, and there's a sort of sense of helplessness in a way that there are some things one can do, but this place it's it's hard to know what really is within my control to actually change anything about some of the terrible things that that happened. So I think that's maybe a, a thing to add. Apart from being exhausting, it's also also a sense of um, helplessness. Teaching has been hard because it's exhausting keeping up as well, uh, if I'm honest. Um, but but I, I tell you what's interesting, and this is where there is perhaps parallels with the UK at the moment, is that Trump is a campaigning politician. That's all he does. And, you know, he, as soon as it was within a month or so of the election result and him being sworn in, he was doing campaign uh, speeches again. And, and in some ways, that's a little bit like Boris Johnson. Whenever Boris Johnson is on the television, you kind of get the impression that he's campaigning for the next election and that's what trump does and he's very uncomfortable actually governing and so and that part, you know he lost he lo you know he lost his um his majority in both houses of congress in the midterms but even before that he wasn't very good at actually getting major bits of legislation done and studies had to rely on things like his executive orders to do exactly the types of thing that gareth's talking about there around immigration um, but he's just been campaigning it's been relentless and so I would, I can't imagine what it's like living there, but just teaching it um, once a year was bad enough. So it's come to that wonderful point of the show. I don't know if anyone has uh, heard any of our other episodes, but we did a lot on the Welsh elections, the Senate elections happening next year. And the one thing we always ask our guests to do is to predict the result of the Senate elections. So I'm not going to ask you to do that, but I am going to ask you what you think will happen in November. So uh, starting with Anna, what do you reckon? <laughs> Um, I am incredibly hopeful of uh, a Biden. I am resigning myself to four more years of Trump. I'm kind of on the, the fence because we, we know from last time around the polls actually don't seem to mean much. Throw in the mail-in vote, throw in sort of the time it's going to take with that. Um, the only thing on that is that I know that most of the swing states maybe where there are mail-in voting have kind of like democratic leaders so they they might call the camp earlier <laughs> but other than that i'm i'm totally on the fence i can see it going either way and i'm prepared for both but hopeful of biden very similar answer i think all things being equal biden has a better chance than clinton did i think partly because People who don't like Trump are more likely, there are more people who are likely to be energized about Trump who would go come out and vote for Biden than there were who would, who, um, would go come out and vote for Clinton last time. So I think there's that advantage. But all things are not equal. I also think in many ways Biden is a, is a more attractive candidate in some ways. I, but all things are not equal. I think the mail-in voting is a big concern. I think other forms of voter suppression, of course, which, uh, as we've talked about, um, certain a kind of way of doing business here. I think there's a reasonable chance that in spite of this, things will not go um, as we might hope. And there's a, there's a very real chance of um, Trump winning. Um, but I think he has, at least all things being equal, at least he has a better chance than Clinton did. Yes. Before, before Ian comes in, I just want to, you know, cheer up our American Welsh colleagues. And Trump was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize this week, you know. So Oh, no. he, is, he is all bad, just, just for clarity, if anyone's listening, all bad. Uh, Ian, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, it's, I'm glad you asked Anna and Gareth first, to be honest. Um, the only thing I'm willing to predict with any certainty that, you know, until the election, the next, next weeks and months, it, it's going to be chaotic. It's going to be a roller coaster, like the last four years, really. Um, and anything can happen. You know, I... It's, it's very odd, but you know, I talked about October surprises last time. I wouldn't put anything past this presidency, this president or his officials. Anything could happen, right? They could, they could try and do anything to, put, to, to, to derail uh, Biden's campaign. And exactly the same with mail-in vote, mail votes. After the election, anything could happen. This is a president who's already suggested that you know, he's probably not going to accept the result if he loses. My fear is, is that we're going to have a really kind of, you know, chaotic run up to the election. The election results going to be contested like never before. And if you can remember, I, I'm showing my age now, but if you can remember in 2000 when there was the very tight vote in Florida, 
actually Al Gore kind of fell on his sword a little bit and said, okay, we need to progress, we need to move on as a, as a country. And actually, even though that was a, a very contested kind of um, uh, issue and, and court case around it in the Supreme Court, Trump's not going to do that, right? He's not going to fall on his sword. So I guess if you really want kind of apoc you know, apocalyptic kind of vision, it's that this breaks everything, yeah? Uh, it's not just that Trump wins, it's that Trump loses narrowly and everything breaks around him um, and he destroys everything rather than loses. That's a really negative kind of you know, vision. Um, but I'm not willing to, 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 to say Biden's going to win, Trump's going to win, because I completely agree with Anna and Gareth. The polls, so much can happen between now and then. You just can't tell, really. Right, come on, Matt. That's me and you. We've never done this before. Which way do you Ooh, think it's going to US go, elections. Uh, I can really easily see a situation in which, uh, like last time, Biden wins the national vote, wins the popular vote, but uh, struggles on the Electoral College. I think that some of the polling coming out of the southern states is, is mind-blowing. I can't, you know, if the Democrats won Texas, I think uh, we're going to have to have a really strong think about how American electoral politics works. But I can very easily see uh, him picking up Wisconsin and, uh, and Michigan and those kind of states. And there's a number of states he narrowly lost out on last time that are sort of in that Rust Belt part of the country that he could easily win again. So I, I think Biden will win, but it's not beyond my uh, imagination to see Trump winning on the Electoral College. What do you think, Kerry? I'll, I'll just be brief and I'll go with the American Welsh. We need Scranton back in a powerful position at US politics. But I understand, Gareth, that Pennsylvania isn't a slam dunk for Biden as his home state. So who knows? But I think we've got to, we've got to all want to go for Biden. Just, but uh, we shall see. And on that cheery, cheery note, I uh, just want to say thank you to all our guests who have been with us uh, this evening. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do it, Anna? Um, I don't do social media very often. You don't do social media? Fair enough. That is wise. Uh, Gareth? Um, so I do have a um, Twitter feed. So it's Gareth Gumro, G-A-R-I-C-G-Y-M-R-O, if anyone wants to follow me or find me on Twitter. Also, if you just doodle Gareth Roberts Linguistics, I think, I think I norm I'm normally the one who turns up. <laughs> so you can find me that way if necessary. Well, thank you, Gareth. Ian? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I have a very imaginative Twitter name of at Ian Stafford 78. Uh, that's me. Um, uh, but also, like Gareth, if you if you Google me, I, I won't be the first Ian Stafford that appears. Um, so I think that there was a, a former Hartlepool mayor who was arrested for stealing uh, women's underwear off washing lines. That's not me. I'm the <laughs> academic at Cardiff University. Uh, I'll just add, in my case, you have to add the linguistics. Uh, otherwise, you get the Doctor Who writer, mostly. <laughs> which I, I, did, feel which somewhat, I feel somewhat upset that if you Google me, I don't think I even come up. <laughs> If you Google my name, there is actually a country and western singer from Texas who turns up. So that's the synergy this pod needed. <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming on tonight. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please take the time to find us on Medium at Cymru, at Facebook at Cymru, and on Twitter at Pod. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.